Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Ramblings of a Madman. And I'm very privileged and honoured to be joined by the nice-ish psychologist, otherwise known as Dan. And given the nature of Dan's job, I'm not sure how else, how much else I can ask about him personally, or he wants to divulge on here <laughs> anyway. But I think the perfect place for us to start would be, because I've had this nagging question, Dan, yeah. and it is ramblings of a madman, pretty self-stigmatising, right? Do I, get a, yeah. do I get a pass for that, for making a joke at my own <laughs> mental health? So, yeah, I, I guess, like, I think... I think it's one of those things where sort of, you know, there's a lot of memes and stuff on social media where people sort of make light of certain sort of, you know, mental health statuses, I guess. Um, and I guess, you know, it's whatever kind of, how, however you help, however you kind of conceptualize and cope with things. Um, I think it's quite okay to kind of um, be a bit sort of irreverent with things, but particularly when they pertain to yourself. I think it's when you start to denigrate and sort of, um, you know um hold hold other people in a in some kind of lesser value based on their mental health status i think that's where you get into kind of tricky territory but i guess if you kind of you know consider yourself in that respect and you because you know and also you ramble then i guess it's you know whatever whatever you want to call yourself well i just thought if nothing else it does exactly what it says on the tin right <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> and um so actually i was saying to my partner i said uh, she said who are you talking to today so i said well i'm a guest on um uh, Dan Osman's podcast and uh, you know she said who's that and I said you know we've done a podcast together and she said what's his called and I said well it's called the ramblings of a madman so she went ramblings of a madman and then you do the nicest ramblings podcast so it's just two people who like to chat and I said yeah absolutely <laughs> that's what it is isn't it podcast just people who like to just talk and ramble exactly I mean yeah if any if nothing else it is just people who have views that they think they, that they think other people um, might give enough of a shit about to listen to Sometimes that might be a bit um, uh, hubristic and um, maybe a bit narcissistic in some sense. Oh, narcissistic. Uh, no, we'll get onto that in a second. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's people yeah. just uh, liking to have a chat. Thank you once again for joining us. And just for the, I mean, I only really have more of an insight into this just from probably the last year. You are by trade. It's not a trade. It's more a vocation. <laughs> You are a forensic psychologist. For the sake of the listener, what is a forensic psychologist and why um, does the world need them? Well, technically, I'm a forensic and a clinical psychologist, so I'm duly qualified in both. Okay, um, I apologize. Yeah. No, 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 it's fine. Don't worry. It's not it's not necessarily, it's not an issue of pride or anything. It's just um, I guess the the reason why I highlight the highlight of it is because I actually straddle both disciplines of psychology within the field that I, within the sort of areas that I work. So um, I guess um, a forensic psychologist, first and foremost, is about sort of trying to understand why people um, engage in offending behavior. It's to sort of understand the reasons why they may have made some of the choices that they have had in their life. And then obviously using um, all the research that exists within the particular field of psychology, trying to understand um, how they may have come to a certain point in their life to sort of uh, make those choices. Uh, and then I guess to kind of then help them understand you know, uh, how they got to where they are and then sort of, you know, thinking about what it is that they need in order to make different choices. Um, and that's, and that can in, in and of itself, that seems like a very simplistic explanation. Um, but that in and of itself can be quite challenging for various reasons. Um, you know, uh, systems in which the people grow up in the prison system itself, uh, the particular difficulties that somebody might have that sort of led them to, um, to be involved in a life of offending, whether that be um, significant trauma history, um, I guess, like the socioeconomic environment in which they grow up in the sort of nature of the family dynamics that they grew up in the, um, I guess, the associates that they may have, um, to name a few. Um, and I guess we kind of have to try and unpick all of that. And sort of essentially help somebody understand that what they did had consequences but maybe in given the context in which they grew up in or the life that they led uh maybe made sense uh as to why they would have done what they did um but then sort of you know helping them understand again like i said the consequences not only for themselves but for the victims uh may there be some victims there usually is there's no such thing as a victimless crime as they say um but then thinking about how to actually sort of take 
the the next steps forward um then sort of alongside that um being a clinical psychologist part and parcel of the work that i do is to try and think about how somebody's uh mental health or sort of clinical psychological uh, difficulties might tie into their risk um so i work uh exclusively um with uh people who um would I guess be labeled with um, diagnoses of personality disorder. Uh, I know that that's a fairly um, controversial term. Some people agree with it, some people don't, but for all intents and purposes, I basically work with people whose personality character traits are you know, to such an extent that it causes difficulties for themselves and other people around them. And in this instance, uh, and, and in these instances would most likely have contributed to their kind of offending pattern of behavior. Mm. Um, so I guess the work that I do, um, tries to sort of marry the understanding of risk that somebody poses, uh, the clinical presentations that they might have, um, and the origins of those, again, sort of, you know, generally rooted in um, specifically the population that I work in, but I would argue that most of most of the prison population have some kind of significant trauma history, um, but that would be rooted in that and then potentially sort of um, coupled with certain aspects of neurodivergence as well. So um, sometimes we I work with people who have um, aspects of uh, ASD um, traits or sort of um, more along sort of like the disordered side of things. Um, also ADHD, but that's um, sort of you know, and then you got to try and think about how that contributes to the way in which they see the they see the world, how they see themselves, the sort of um, difficulties with, I guess, focus or impulse control that they might have. Um, but yeah, so kind of combining those two um, sort of elements of psychological disciplines, I sort of work with people to try and help them, um, yeah, live different lives and make different choices, essentially. And, ho and choices that will hopefully um, lead them to to not kind of make the same choices that got them to the the point where they are in their life now. Mm. So I, I think it's, it's fair to say it's fairly complex work. <laughs> yeah. Which, which yes. I think that kind of leads on to many of the conversations we've had, actually, because, <clears throat> you know, in a day and age of social media and just this almost this informed approach to thinking and everything hashtag and everything reduced yeah. into a sound bite we see much of this i guess flippant terminology which yeah. is kind of what what brought us onto that conversation of the use of binge certainly within the industry that i work with people will flippantly say binge whereas often there's a big distinction between binge eating disorder and there's someone that's just a binge on a netflix series for example yeah. and one that's popped up and does frequently pop up is triggered yeah, And often when we talk about triggered, which I'd love for you to expand on, but I see it kind of described as my mild annoyance at something mm. <laughs> is described as triggered. Is that triggered? Mm. And obviously, you know, I'm, I'm hugely conscious that we can't remove people's personal experiences from this as well. So well, no. something that could be triggering to someone else might be to someone quite mild something quite benign and not yeah. important so i don't want to remove anyone's personal experience from that but when we talk about triggering especially in relation to actual trauma i wondered whether you could just give us a broad overview of what that is to help yeah. people understand that sure yeah absolutely i guess so again sort of like what you're saying I, I'm, I'm very cautious about having this conversation because i guess as you've identified with the sort of um, advent of social media discussions around mental health difficulties um, have become a lot more common. The conversations are happening a lot more frequently. Um, there's a lot more, um, sorry, there's a lot less, uh, I guess, <clears throat> aversion or um, I, I can't think of the word, but people are a bit more emboldened to talk about things on social media, um, particularly around uh, the fact that there's a lot more, I guess, psychology slash mental health accounts that kind of try and make this information a bit more accessible, which I think is obviously fantastic and great. And I think um, the more information out there, the better, the, the better. But I guess kind of what you're talking about, and I've got some, I've looked it up on Wikipedia, because I think I've mentioned this to you before. Um, I think what's happening is there's this idea of what's called concept creep. Um, which is something that was identified by somebody called Nick Haslam in 2016, um, which basically you can go look it up on Wikipedia. If you type in the word, if you type in concept creep, you can have a look for yourself. But it's basically this idea that um, 
there are sort of harm related terms, particularly around with uh, within the sort of field of psychology um, that have kind of, I guess, for all intents and purposes, remained kind of within the field, as it were. So there was this sort of uh, vernacular or terminology or way of speaking um, that was understood amongst professionals within the field. And they've become those terms have become more um accessible and popularized within social media but at the same time whilst they become more accessible and they become um, a little bit more um within the zeitgeist within sort of like social media and and, and all that kind of stuff um the 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 notion or the understanding of what the concepts original meanings were have shifted slightly or are starting to shift and are maybe starting to encompass things that maybe aren't originally intended to fall within the term so an example is what you're talking about in the sense of of trigger of triggers or being triggered now the word the word trigger is associated um with within the field of sort of psychology and mental health firstly with trauma um, but then also with sort of like the onset of a psychological difficulty. So when we think about um, somebody's um, psychological distress, so say, for example, if somebody has, um, to use an example, somebody has uh, developed schizophrenia. Um, for anybody that doesn't know what schizophrenia is, it's a form of psychosis where uh, for all intents and purposes, somebody uh, essentially becomes out of touch with reality. So you start to hear voices, you start to see things, you start to uh, believe things that are kind of outside the realms of what we would understand reality to be. So uh, there might be sort of quite significant paranoia, thinking that things are happening to you when they uh, may not be, um, you know, quite a, a, quite a common uh, trope of schizophrenia is thinking that sort of like people are listening to you through like or speaking to you through the tv or people are listening to you through sort of electronic devices and things like that okay now the 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 thing with mental health difficulties is that you kind of formulate how somebody got to that point so when i talk about so when i talked about earlier trying to understand somebody's um mental health difficulties to help them understand how they got to where they are. We do that by sort of gathering a lot of information and assessing them and then creating what is essentially a formulation, which, you know, um, is essentially a best fit narrative around a person's life that kind of takes them from sort of birth up until this point and sort of thinks about all the significant points in their life that may have contributed to, you know, the, the psychological difficulty or mental health illness that somebody, uh, the mental illness that somebody has. Um, and within, within the formulation, we'll sometimes talk about triggers and those will generally be like key events. So things that kind of precipitated somebody's mental health decline. So again, things like, um, so <laughs> Well, it's kind of broken down more into sort of like predisposing factors. So predisposing factors would be things in somebody's life that kind of predisposes them to potentially developing a mental illness. So those can be things that are related to either their um, biological or genetic makeup, um, their social environment growing up, how they develop psychologically, which would obviously then be sort of formed and shaped by the uh, by their um, social sort of um, environment. And, and that can relate to parenting, schooling, um, again, sort of uh, the class, uh, in, um, again, sort of the um, class status that somebody might have, the socioeconomic, um, uh, the socioeconomic environment that they may grow up in. There's a whole raft of things that could kind of develop as, as um, predisposing. But then what we think about is um, just before somebody develops uh, a mental illness, so either depression, severe anxiety, you know, bipolar, schizophrenia, all those kind of things. Usually there is something that kind of, I guess is, is like a bit of a breaking point, sort of like a straw that broke the camel's back kind of thing where uh, all those predisposing sort of um, factors create almost like a bit of a perfect storm. And then there's almost like this one event, whether that be some kind of stressor, sometimes that's sort of a bereavement, that's an additional trauma that somebody experiences. Maybe that's, um, you know, um, job pressures, uh, a relationship breakdown, any number of things, which kind of then almost sort of tip somebody into this state of psychological distress. 
So we sometimes refer to that as a trigger. So we talk about that as a precipitating factor. So a trigger, something that triggered off this um, psychological distress. That's So that's one sort of um, version of trigger. The other version of trigger, which is commonly um, sort of discussed within sort of psychology and mental health is kind of what you alluded to in relation to trauma. Um, and here I'm talking about sort of, you know, all kinds of trauma. So there's there's what we call one-off traumas. So um, I've just got a list here of things that could potentially be um, one-off traumas. Um, well, firstly, I guess um, a trauma, there's lots of various different sort of definitions um, for trauma, um, you know, from as simple as a negative event or a stressor, um, right down to the, you know, I've got a, I've got a definition here uh, where it says like a wider set of experiences or events that can happen to at any time of life and include some of the adversities that ex uh, can be experienced in childhood, which are known as ACEs. And I can talk about that a little bit more if you, if you'd like, um, and they can be emotionally or physically harmful or life-threatening events. Okay. So when we talk about, so when we, I say, we talk about trauma within the mental health field, that's kind of the thing that we tend to focus on. Um, and we'll come back to concept creep in relation to trauma in a little while as well, because that's also another term that seems to, for better or worse, I'm not entirely sure, but that seems to be kind of broadening as well. But we can maybe talk about that in, in a second if you want to as well. Um, but I guess um, when we talk about traumatic events, there's sort of single events or acute one-off traumas which can be things like, you know, a robbery, a mugging, um, a, a sexual assault, a physical assault, something like a natural disaster, um, being a victim of a terrorist um, event, uh, accidents, so vehicular accidents, being involved in a car crash, bereavements, um, medically induced trauma, so going through, uh, so, you know, having like an operation or something like that, which, you know, goes wrong, or, um, you know, sometimes people talk about sort of uh, being, um under anesthetic and they kind of wake up midway through a through mm. an operation that can be quite traumatic um and then i guess um sort of somebody close to you dying um as well so those are kind of one-off traumas um then you get what's called i guess you know could potentially thought be thought of as more prolonged chronic or i guess what's being more understood as complex trauma um, and those, and again, those are also very, those vary quite um, a lot. So those that can um, fall under sort of things like racism, stigmatization, again, poverty, immigration, sexual, sexual exploitation, which I guess is like prolonged sexual violence, mm -hmm. um, uh, social disadvantage, growing up in violent neighborhoods, uh, being in prison and confined uh, for long periods of time, uh, chronic bullying, um, and I guess uh, critical and really overbearing parents, so quite neglectful, overbearing, really harsh parenting, um, social isolation, and um, and and things like that. Mm -hmm. So I guess when we talk about trauma, that's kind of those things. And I guess you know it's not necessarily an ex that, that's what I've just sort of talked about. It's not necessarily an exhaustive list, but I suppose those are kind of those are kind of the things that we talk about when we talk about trauma. Now. When we talk about a trigger, what we mean is, is we talk about something that is a reminder of that particular trauma or of those particular traumas that you might have experienced, okay? Which is very different to, as you were saying, the type of use of trigger, which I guess is becoming a little bit more common. Um, and I agree, I saw a post the other day on social media um, I can't remember who it was by, and that's not really important, but I guess somebody put something up on their stories um, and it said, if you're triggered by this, then you need to kind of like examine yourself or look at yourself and all that kind of stuff. And I read it and I was like, I get what you're saying, but actually if you substituted the word trigger for if you're annoyed by this, if you're offended by this, if you are mildly discomforted by this, if this um, sits unpleasantly with you, then you need to figure that out. And that's not that's not the same as like a trauma trigger. Like a trauma trigger is something that will um, 
almost like viscerally remind you of the experience that mm -hmm. you've had and it will kind of um you know so to to expand on that so when we talk about the 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 one off and the complex um types of trauma they develop what develops from those depending on the nature of the trauma and whether actually somebody is traumatized by the event which is also something that, that sort of seems to be um taken for granted really i guess within the mm -hmm. sort of social media conversations is that people can experience trauma but that doesn't necessarily mean that they are traumatized and to be traumatized means to be significantly impacted by the event. Okay. So for somebody that's gone through sort of the more complex type of trauma, so things like, you know, let's go for oh, trying to think of something that's unpleasant, but not necessarily massively, um, I guess, difficult to listen to, I suppose. Um, well, let's go back to the list. Okay. Bullying. Okay. Let's take bullying. So, you know, bullying is fairly common. It's something that can happen and, you know, it's something that sort of shapes uh, people's views of themselves. I guess when people experience the more complex traumas, one is more likely to end up being traumatized because I guess that's quite chronic. The idea behind um, complex trauma is the fact that um, one is exposed to the stressor or the event um, and to the point where like escape almost feels impossible or it feels consistently unrelenting and is always there. So, you know, it's, um, you know, people talk about, um, well, it's been more recognized now within the sort of domestic violence, um, sort of understanding of domestic violence that children who grow up in domestically violent households will probably develop sort of complex trauma traits because actually um that kind of home environment is a chronic stressor so living under consistent constant fear of threat of not even necessarily for a, a child to be um, um receive physical assault but just witnessing either parents being um assaulted or, or or abused in some way that just the just growing up in that environment can be chronically stressful and um to the point where it's traumatizing the one-off traumas, so your car accidents, your natural disasters, um, things like that, it's not necessarily a given that somebody will be traumatized by that. And I guess what what determines whether somebody will be traumatized or not, or just experience a trauma and kind of bounce back, which is not to say that they won't be affected, but I guess what they will do is they will kind of, I don't know, process that as part of their life integrated into sort of their being and kind of find ways to move forward in some mm. in some respect if that makes sense yeah um, sorry to interrupt you there because I, I just I, i'm always very conscious is like this is hugely into individual yeah and you always want to be well i like to be i think as a, a mental health advocate open the space for a safe platform for people to openly discuss these things as they yeah. should be people should be more comfortable but at the same time it's a lot of it's it's pathologizing just basic human experience and exactly as you, yeah. as you said is it is it a diagnosable anxiety disorder or is it just just experiencing angst is it sadness or is it depression and they, they use so interchangeably i think it's, it's perfectly understandable why people get confused which is why i mm. think this is such a valuable discussion to have yeah no absolutely and i think you're right sort of and i guess you know part of the reason why i sort of started this conversation by saying i want to talk about this with caution is because trauma and people's experiences of trauma or what they might consider traumatizing or traumatic um is is subjective that's one of the whole things about trauma is that it's it's about whether you found the experience to be overwhelming um stressful life-threatening uh whether you thought that you were going to die or whether you thought your life was perpetually in jeopardy or, or something along those lines um you know so some people might on, on uh with a one-off um with a one-off sort of trauma some people might think you know some people you know my own experience is that i was in a car crash when i was uh about 18 19 um and for a very long time i was very skittish around cars mm. um i was okay driving them but being a passenger i was very sort of quite nervous and you know I, I i now know that i was 
traumatized by the fact that I was in a car crash. But at the time, I didn't really know that much because, um, you know, the, again, this is why these conversations being out in the public are a lot more are, are really helpful, because obviously it potentially would have um, given me some idea that this is something that I've experienced. Um, but um, but for somebody else, so say, for example, if you were in a car crash and you experienced the same car crash, actually, you might have just been like, oh, Jesus Christ, that was an insane fucking experience. Uh, I nearly died, but actually, I'm all right. You know, life is good. Life carries on and you'd be all right. And the difference between the difference between our experiences is around sort of both our internal resilience and the way in which we make sense about the trauma that we experienced, whether we think that it was a, a, a near death experience and what we what that means to us. So for me, that was like, oh, my God, I nearly died. I could possibly die again. Cars are really scary. They're just pieces of, you know, they're essentially just boxes where we drive around at like 70, 80, 90 miles an hour. And actually, that's just madness whereas for you you could probably just be like oh that was a pretty intense experience that's made me really appreciate life a little bit more i'm probably going to be a bit more cautious on the roads but actually you know life is important i need to just live my life a little bit more safely but that's about how you and i for the various different ways in which we've come to understand the world will make sense of that trauma mm-hmm. but then there's also the external resiliency that we have so the support that gathers around us post trauma so you know again my experience might be shaped by the fact that i was maybe the only person in the car my parents were not necessarily didn't give a shit uh, and, and this is just me making it by the way my parents really they were there they were they were around me they gave me great support but i'm just speaking hypothetically so say for example if they i didn't have any support no one really cared about the fact that i almost died they were just like eh, it's, a, it's a car crash you know people own car crashes all the time they're more common than plane crashes whatever more likely to be eaten by a shark whatever whatever they say that would be potentially really invalidating for me and that would potentially sort of impact on how i then make sense of the trauma whereas for you if you had a a similar car crash and people sort of gathered around you showed you lots of love showed you um lots of support assisted you helped you make make sense of it process it blah 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 all that kind of stuff then you will again make sense of the trauma in a different way and it'll be a different experience for you and external support sort of is is you know has various different layers there are there's obviously your immediate family there's your partners your um your friends then there's the i guess um social support around you hospitals mental health support systems mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff then there's the so then there's kind of the the societal support and you know s- support sort of um expands outwards in in that way and depending on who you are as a person and what your support, uh, your external re- um, resilience looks like in terms of that, you will um, experience things in, in a particular way. Yeah, I'm, I'm nodding my head in agreement there because I think of so many different things and when you're talking about almost the disparity in the levels of support is straight away springs to mind is the British government and support of people in lower socioeconomically deprived areas. And Absolutely. when we're talking about mental health considerations, financial factors come into that, we're talking epigenetics and the perfect storm, as you kind of reference. But within that and um, everyone else's individual experience, I guess one thing I did really want to explore was you mentioned this real visceral response in people and how much that can affect them. And Again, when we talk about happy, clappy mental health, which I, I do see hugely positive things about on social media, don't get me wrong, but I think it often comes from a place of privilege when you can pick your hardest bouts, if you like. So if your yeah. way of ticking your mental health box is doing a cold plunge in, in the morning, so be it. There are people that are working two, three jobs to feed their families, or whatever. So it's hugely subjective from that point of view. But yeah. when we're talking about quality of life and how debilitating that can be for some people what does that look like in your clinical experience how can that look like um as in like you know what what is it i suppose what does it look like when somebody is consistently traumatized and activated and things like that when someone uh, i use a flipping example here someone may say oh you know respond to something on social media and someone's response to that uh counter to whatever argument is placed in front of them is oh someone's triggered that's very different to debilitating yeah quality of life that someone that you know you yeah. might you may be working with experience so so yeah so again to, to kind of talk about like what 
what it means to be traumatized and to then have a trigger which will then sort of um well, trigger activates those trauma responses um i guess you know one of the one of the ways in which we try and understand how how somebody um is understood to be traumatized is through sort of the, the their responses post the traumatic event and i guess when we talk about single one-off events we tend to sort of talk about um ptsd and i and I know people might roll their eyes and be like, oh my God, trauma doesn't just mean PTSD. And and I agree. Like, I'm not saying that that's, you know, I'm not saying that everybody who has a traumatic experience as a trauma will have PTSD again, because I don't believe that everybody that experiences trauma goes on to be traumatized. But if somebody is traumatized, they will probably um, experience some of the symptoms that might align with the diagnosis of PTSD, um, which would include things like a continued sense of threat. So, when somebody is traumatized by something that they, you know, was really overwhelming of their senses, uh, sort of overtook their sort of capacity to think about whether they might survive a situation, you know, uh, the, the sense of threat is always prevalent in there. So for me, when I was in a car, the sense of threat was like, oh my God, this car at any point in time could probably crash or this driver that I'm sitting next to is probably terrible and they're going to, you know, crash the car. So the sense of threat is sort of, you know, cognitive, it's on your mind, it's um, there but it's also really felt within your body. So, you know, feeling really tense, really sweaty. You know, we talk about your, your, your autonomic, autonomic nervous system. So your sympathetic nervous system that the, the fight flight part of your body being continuously activated. Um, um, so, so there will be that. Um, and that's you. So when we talk about triggered, that's usually what we're talking about happening is there is a visceral bodily cognitive psychological physiological response to something that reminds you of the trauma so for me for a very long time um it was um being in a car particularly being a passenger in a car my heart would race i would just be sitting there hoping and praying that the car journey would end fairly soon um i had um <laughs> like thinking about it now i can laugh about it now but um when when I was driving in a car and you know, I'd be driving, I'd be in the passenger seat and uh, cars would go past me or people would drive quite close to, I don't know, like concrete barriers or whatever. I would worry so much that they were going to hit it that I would literally sh like I would pull away from the passenger seat door like I'd, and I'd almost like literally clench my ass cheeks being like in fear of like, oh, my God, this car's going to hit. Um, and and so that's what so. And that's because I was sitting like in a trigger, basically, like I was I was riding shotgun <laughs> in mm. one of my triggers. So when we talk about a trigger, we talk about quite a visceral response. Um, but then one of the other things um, related that we might sort of consider a, a trauma response would be like avoidance of the things that would that would trigger us. So, you know, no one wants to be reminded of these um, things that happen to us. So the natural thing to want to do is to avoid it and that again can be cognitive so you avoid thinking about it and then physically you would avoid either going to places talking about it so for me I couldn't necessarily avoid getting in a car but sort of you know if I could I would potentially drive like so if we had to go somewhere I would say yeah I'll drive rather than be a passenger mm. but then actually when I was a passenger I would be shitting bricks literally um so there's you know so that's one of the things that we think about is is avoiding things but then also there's a sense of re-experiencing and this is something that i didn't experience i didn't i didn't have um nightmares flashbacks um things like that but people who you know would typically um be given a diagnosis of ptsd that's what they have and again sort of when we talk about triggers um triggers so flashbacks and nightmares can be triggers, but then also triggers can then trigger nightmares, flashbacks. And when we talk about flashbacks, um, it's often talked about like physically being right back in the situation that you were in. It's like almost like you're being transported back in time to the moment where whatever happened to you happened to you. Mm -hmm. um, and then... And so that's kind of like for the one-off events. So when we talk about sort of the um, complex, more complex side of things, um, it includes the sense of threat, the avoidance and the re-experiencing, but it also 
um, includes sort of difficulties with emotional regulation. So because people who have complex trauma are often exposed to that trauma for so long, um, they quite they don't quite know how to manage or regulate the situations because th themselves or situations because you know the sense of threat is always there. Um, sometimes they they are safe, but then sometimes they're not, and you know the the sense of threat and the avoidance um, adds to that. So they will just be you know really up and down. They will be really. Um, we talk. Uh, I guess we talk about. Um, Clinically, we talk about what's called emotional lability, so being emotionally labile. So your emotions can go from one extreme to the other. So you can be extremely angry to sort of extremely sort of sad and low and and that kind of thing. Um, but even 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 people who um, may have, for lack of a better phrase, slightly less slightly less traumatizing responses to complex trauma. Uh, might not necessarily have quite severe, quite such severe um, emotional dysregulation, but they might be people who are quite, you know, hot tempered, easily, easily sort of angered um, or easily moody. You know, their 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 moods can change almost like um, on a switch. They can be, you know, one way one second, and then just all of a sudden they're like their mood has shifted quite palpably. Um, and then they will definitely have sort of like a negative self-concept. So they'll have difficulties with their self-identity. Um, they will think that they are typically a bad person or that they deserved what happened to them in some respect or that, you know, what they did in their life meant that the thing that happened to them was some kind of punishment and was, um, yeah they were deserving of that in in some way and they guess they have really so low self-esteem low self-worth low self-value um and don't necessarily consider themselves to be um i guess you know people worthy of any kind of consideration um and then what you have with all of that is interpersonal difficulties because i guess somebody who is emotionally dysregulated who is um um you know, really hypervigilant to threat, um, always trying to avoid situations that may trigger their trauma responses. Distrusting um, problems with relationships. Yeah, exactly. That just naturally creates mm. difficulties in relating to other people. And that, you know, and, and that's not just in sort of intimate relationships, but that can be between family, friends, uh, work colleagues. It just, it just makes it really difficult for that person to kind of just trust other people and, um, uh, well yeah essentially trust that somebody's not going to harm them or hurt them mm. in some way yeah so when so yeah sorry no i was going to say because the reason why i feel this is almost quite poignant this time of year is that when we talk about trauma especially you know thank you for that as such a perfect explanation i think and something i think everyone can relate to on some level as well whether mm. they can associate that with being long-term traumatized or experiencing trauma at some point in their lives but with, I recorded a solo podcast a couple of weeks back on body image and these uncomfortable conversations that often crop up with bumping into maybe family members and friends that you don't see that often, but can bring about some of these visceral experiences in, in body. So I thought it'd be quite interesting to kind of explore navigating difficult family dynamics in which there may be something and I, I by the way i don't expect you to have all the answers here but just yeah. just broadly like some kind of advice for people that may be socializing seeing friends and family they haven't seen for a while maybe difficult conversations they've never been able to have cropping up yeah. having some sort of exploratory journey later on in life and which brings about this self-awareness and all these conversations they do want to have but they know mm -hmm. maybe aren't worth having mm -hmm. So yeah, it's a tough time of year, isn't it? Um, for some people, for some, it's a really joyous time, you know. Um, but for other people, I guess, I guess some of what I've talked about in terms of uh, where the difficulties in someone's life um, occurs from quite often can occur within a family dynamic. Maybe not necessarily to the point where somebody will have, you know, complex PTSD symptoms, but certainly there might be some difficulties around. Um, avoidance, um, not necessarily feeling very comfortable around particular people because of whatever reason. And I suppose it's really tricky, isn't it? Because I guess, <clears throat> I guess my first thing would to say would be, if there's anybody 
who you're potentially going to see this festive season who kind of brings that up for you like if you were to think about them and they kind of make you know physically in your body or cognitively in your mind you have you know some kind of adverse response to thinking about that person i guess what you want to try and think about long term is how are you going to navigate that person being around that person in the future um because i guess if you've made plans to see them this christmas you, you probably can't do much about it now although you know i guess you can uh you, you know we all have choices about what we want to do but i guess i guess the because i knew we were gonna i knew we were gonna sort of discuss this and i guess one of the things that i thought that could be quite helpful uh for people is um so I'm a, I'm a DBT therapist. I'm trained as a DBT therapist. So it's, uh, that stands for dialectical behavioral therapy. Um, and it's typically used uh, with individuals who have high levels of self-harm and suicidality. And it's about trying to help them cope with um, their, um, uh, well, self-harm and suicidal uh, behaviors um, in a way that, you know, leads them to not self-harm or, or or want to try and attempt to take their life but the but the skills that are taught um are actually generally quite applicable to people in everyday life like you know uh, you know there are certain things that i've learned from from the therapy that i think are really sort of um gold in terms of trying to manage your own life and things like that and within the within within dbt there's a module called interpersonal effectiveness um and within that is what's something called the dear man skill um you can go look it up on google or anything like that it's really i'll, I'll add something to the show notes as well to yeah, yeah. People. um and i guess <clears throat> and i guess within dbt as a whole um dbt is about trying to help people make decisions about how they want to solve a problem okay and usually within dbt the problem is you know not wanting to harm yourself or sort of you know try and make attempts on your life but essentially you can apply this kind of um thinking to any kind of problem really um but within dbt there's usually what we think about there's four solutions to a problem so the first one is that you can solve the problem okay so if you can solve the problem try and solve it and you know there are various and how you solve it will be very specific to what the problem is so thinking about family dynamics difficult family members tr difficult family times if you can solve that problem between now and when you see them on christmas day or boxing day or over the festive period try and do that what how what that looks like is entirely dependent on the situation um not going to the event is a solution to the problem. So completely taking yourself away from the situation, if that's something that you feel will solve the problem and save you a whole lot of sort of emotional difficulty or angst or anything like that, that is, you know, that is one option. Um, we would probably call that like avoidance problem solving, but, it, you know, times, times are tough. There's only you know like less than a you know just under just over a week until christmas so like you know needs must do what you need to do but i guess if you can solve the problem then that's one way to do it the other thing is to change how you feel about the problem so try and reevaluate the situation in a way that kind of makes sense to you or in a way that will help you kind of get through the situation in a way that's um best serves your own needs okay so you know it, like can you sort of do some pros and cons about you know whether it's worth going to see these family members or this family member or is it is it worth engaging this person in a conversation or and what are your personal limits about how much you engage in with these particular people like are you willing to say hello to them are you willing to be civil with them can you just have a, a normal com you know when i say normal conversation i mean like you know superficial conversations with them um or can you engage with them in a in a slightly more in-depth way or do you you know can you go to wherever it is that you're going but just sort of say hi and then just not speak to them for the rest of the uh for the rest of the for the rest of the day week whatever it is um but i guess kind of you know within sort of changing how you feel um, about a situation, there's sort of, that involves sort of emotional regulation skills. 
So things like um, acting opposite. So if you have to, can you just grit your teeth and just put on a smile and just talk to the person for five minutes that you need to, or is that intolerable? Um, so that's one thing it can do change how you feel. The other thing is to um, try and tolerate or accept the situation as it is, you know, if there's nothing that you can do about it, can you just for however long accept, tolerate, put up with the situation um, for as long as needs be? Like, and again, this is where you kind of weigh up the situations. Because um, uh, again, this is all subjective, isn't it? So um, is it like your partner's parents and maybe they're not necessarily the nicest people, but for the sake of your partner, you will just have to kind of put up with whatever whatever it is is it is it you know is it your grandparents and they're maybe slightly overbearing but actually just for the sake of your kids who you want to just let them have a nice christmas can you just sit and tolerate and and um you know uh, do what you need to do and i guess when we think about tolerating we think about trying to plan ahead so planning what you will do how you will cope with it we think about self-soothing so are there ways in which you can kind of um make yourself feel better and you know i don't necessarily want to advocate for the use of alcohol but i guess sometimes for some people sort of you know having a beer or two just kind of calms the situation down unless it's unless it's something that aggravates the situation in which case don't do it um but i guess you know can you try and focus on your children's joy? Can you like kind of focus on the fact that it's for them and you're trying to make them have a happy Christmas, which can kind of like, you know, supersede whatever difficulties it is that you're experiencing within the family dynamic. Um, and then the fourth option is to stay miserable. So, you know, th that's your choice as well. You can either choose to do none of the above and you can just be like, this is going to be shit. I'm just going to go be miserable. It's one day a year, two days a year, whatever and just stick it out um and uh and yeah i guess that's kind of i know that's not necessarily the most beneficial no i think i think advice. that's hugely helpful and i think you know as you said <laughs> within that as well it depends on the severity right it's can you tolerate it or is it i think there's also difficult conversations around perhaps something you realize later in life are these people best for me and those yeah. around me or yeah. am, am I tolerating this for the wrong reasons? I think I I could yeah. certainly relate to that. Maybe this whole, you know, blood and all that, and you don't get to pick your family and everything else, and you you kind of work out that you're tolerating behaviour you wouldn't accept elsewhere, but actually mm. for reasons that aren't to the benefit of you and those you most. Yeah, yeah. and I guess and I guess it's and I guess it's it's exactly that, isn't it? So. The other thing that I sort of struggle with just a little bit, I can understand where it comes from, but I guess it's also not necessarily quite so easy or it's not, it just seems to be a slightly um, knee jerk reaction sort of way of thinking about this, where they're just like, cut people out of your life. And I'm like, okay, to, 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 to what, what has the person done to you in your life that requires them to be cut out like if they're horrifically abusive they're awful they're just not nice people they again they make you feel disgusting scared petrified all that kind of stuff then yes probably they're not the they're not the best person to be around and you could probably do without that person in your life if they're just like an annoying uncle who you know didn't send me a Christmas card. <laughs> yeah, that kind of thing. Like, like, do you need to cut that person out of your life? Or actually, can you have a conversation with that person and be like, do you know what? For the last couple of years, this is how I felt. Oh, and this is where the dear man skill comes in, by the way. You know, there is the, the option of having conversations with people. So the dear man skill sets out um, several sort of ways in which to kind of have conversations. Um, and I know it sounds really... Um, what's the word I'm looking for condescending maybe, but it's not, it's, it's you know, like trying to teach people. I don't about think how to so. I, I think these are um, skills we take for granted that people have communication yeah. skills, but I always see, see the positive in that is that's always something we can enhance. That's always something, yeah. a skill we can learn and um, get better at over time. Exactly. So, you know, so the dear men skills are an acronym for um, seven. Is it seven, seven steps to kind of having a, a 
an, an effective conversation. So the D stands for describing the situation in a simple way. Okay. So, you know, if it's an uncle that's not sent you Christmas card, it's saying, you know, uncle John for seven years now, you've not sent me any Christmas cards. Okay. So that's explaining the situation. Then the E stands for expressing how you feel using I statements. So you've not sent me Christmas cards for seven years. And that makes me feel like um, you don't like me or that I've done something wrong to you. And it makes me feel quite sad. Then the A stands for like asserting either by asking for your need um, or saying firmly no, depending on the situation. So it would, you know, it would make me feel really good if you could send me a Christmas card this year, because actually you're my favorite uncle. Um, and it would make me feel really nice if you sent me a Christmas card. And then the R is for reinforcing. So making sure that the other person knows um, cause I guess kind of, there needs to be a bit of a benefit to other people when you're sort of having these conversations is not just about you. Mm. Um, so, you know, you, so the thing about, so the thing that I struggle with, with the, um, cut people off completely narrative is that, and I say this very tentatively because again, I'm not talking about extremely abusive or horrible situations, but human beings are relational, right? So it's not just somebody always doing something to you. There is, there is something about us as well, whether it's conscious or unconscious, intended or unintended, that kind of creates the dynamic that exists. And which is why you kind of use these sort of techniques to kind of explore that, because if it is something about you that you don't know that you're doing, you don't know that you've done, um, or, the, yeah. or, 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 or a way that somebody views you or thinks about you or holds you in mind in some way. Again, that's not your fault. It's not to say that you've done this intentionally or purposefully, but the reason why somebody behaves towards you has something to do with you as a person. Yeah. Do, do, Without, you, know this, do you know what this makes me think of? Or yeah. the, again, Instagram is the people that describe everyone else as red flags, whereas you <laughs> kind of think that, Hang on, there's a common yeah. denominator here. <laughs> yeah. If everyone yeah. else is a red flag. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, so, sort of they they use they use the, the example of a, a guy who um apparently dates crazy women. And I use crazy in inverted commas where he says, All my ex-girlfriends were crazy. And it's like, were they crazy or was there something about you that kind of <laughs> yeah. brought, you know, made them made them yeah. act to you in in a certain way? Um and yeah, so so I guess it's again, it's not to, so when I say that there is the interactions are relational and they're two way. It's not about sort of. I'm not saying that you have anybody's done something purposefully. I'm not trying to say that you are to blame for how somebody else behaves towards you. If they behave towards you horribly, that's on them as well. Like mm. that's they need to take responsibility for that. But what I'm saying is, is that there is something in the interaction consciously or unconsciously between you and another person that creates the dynamic between you. So mm -hmm. they behave to they behave towards you in a particular way for a particular reason. And that has something to do with you as a person. For, for example, it might just be that you're an overly bubbly, really nice person. And actually some people find overly bubbly, gregarious people really fucking annoying sometimes. And actually <laughs> no one really wants to talk to somebody who's really effervescent and overly bubbly. So what people might do is just avoid you and be like, I actually don't want to talk to that person because they're quite a lot. So rather I'm just going to go and spend some, you know, they yeah, talk yeah. too much. They talk really loudly. They talk really animatedly. And actually that's just a bit draining for me. So what I'm going to do is I'm probably just going to like avoid them. And if I see them, I'm just going to wave to them and I'm just going to go have a drink there by myself. Now you as the person who's very effervescent and bubbly and really excited to see other people might see that and be like, well, that person's an arsehole. Why don't they want to talk to me? That's just not, a, they're just not a nice person. Yeah, it's, yeah totally. so, so it's, it's that kind of thing. It's like, you know, you don't, you haven't intentionally tried to mm. alienate them with your effervescence and bubbliness and gregariousness. It's just the way in which that person receives how you are, maybe just yeah. doesn't gel with them. But the if great, you communicate, sorry. No, I was just gonna say the great thing about this is even if that other person doesn't necessarily have the courage or the ability to instigate this conversation by instigating this conversation yourself, it yeah. opens up the platform to have this exchange. It gives either exactly. person permission to have their say as well. Yeah. But not from a shouting and hollering point of view. 
Yeah, exactly. A, a, I've noticed that when I come say hi to you, um, you kind of tend to just wave hello and then you kind of seem to go off and, you know, that makes me feel like I've done something wrong or I'm not, you know, it leaves me a bit confused actually because I thought we were friends. So I was wondering, um, you know, could we have a bit of a discussion about what's going on because I'd really like to, you know, be your friend and I don't quite, you know, I don't like that we don't speak to each other and, and all that kind of stuff. Mm. and and yeah so i guess you know so you describe you um express you research you reinforce the, the 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 sort of the things that you want and then the man part of the dear man is about sort of being mindful so not becoming distracted by things so if somebody tries to veer off topic of conversation and try and derail you and say oh yeah no no that's fine well you know let's have a beer and you're like oh no actually you know i just want to just double check and clarify that we're on the same page and all that kind of stuff so don't be distracted by it Appear confident, regardless of how you might feel, because you know, um, helps. And I'm not saying that it's really easy. It's not. It's 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 not an easy thing to do. Depend and again, depending on who you're having a conversation with, the um, confidence you might feel in having that um, conversation um, may vary. Um, and then I guess negotiate as well. Like you know, try and see things from other people's perspectives. Try and sort of give some wiggle room for negotiation because you know again in the example about the effervescent slash person who's again okay let's call them the extrovert versus the introvert so the introverted person isn't just suddenly overnight going to be an introverted person and just be like oh yeah sorry let's have you know ten thousand conversations at a, at a thousand miles a minute because that's just not who they are are they they can't just change um who they are overnight but i guess what you can do is you can negotiate and say ah okay so i understand so when i see you and when i'm very excitable that actually makes you feel a little bit uncomfortable and what you want to do is try and retreat so what i will do is i will you know maybe tone down how i speak to you but actually what would be nice for you is to maybe sort of respond to me or let me know when i'm getting a little bit um you know overzealous or overexcited and, and all that kind of stuff because you know then that helps maintain the conversation um and yeah, and I guess in a perfect world, all those conversations would go swimmingly. Um, but I guess that's just kind of a bit of a guide as to how to have these conversations with yeah. people who who, who maybe, um, again, aren't necessarily the worst people in the world, but are probably, um, you know, rub you up the wrong way for whatever yeah. reason. I think there's probably just some acceptance as well as that. <laughs> they're not always going to go to plan those conversations no. No. <laughs> and knowing that as well. Now we didn't get onto narcissists and everyone being a narcissist. I feel that <laughs> might be another podcast in itself, but yeah, 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 I'm absolutely. hugely conscious of time, your valuable and precious time. So the last thing I wanted to ask you, firstly, thank you for all of that, Dan. That was incredibly sure, helpful. You. I think, especially to people listening was, I think we can all probably agree. Social media isn't the best place for people to be going for individual advice around their absolutely. mental health. Yes. But in terms of you, the clinical work that you do as a practicing psychologist what is if, uh, i mean there could be many but two red flags in terms of just just two just two of the many that most people will come across on social media okay so 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 the first thing would be people who have sort of answers absolute answers to things like um i guess people who make claims that certain specific you know on on social media there's there's often posts that say if you do this it's like a trauma response or it's because of this kind of thing hmm. which is not necessarily wrong but it's also not necessarily a hundred percent true like the behavior that is exhibited could be a result of a numerous amounts of things. So, you know, when I talked about a formulation and I talked about predisposing factors and I talked about precipitating factors and all those kind of things, the reason why, the, the, the reason that we as human beings come to behave in the way that we are in our individualistic, um, idiosyncratic ways is the way I behave and the way I act and the, the path that brought me to how I am is vastly different from your own journey to how you got to where you are there might be similarities along the way the experiences that we've had may be similar ish 
but the way in which we've interpreted them, the way that we see the world, the lens through which we see the world will be different and will maybe bear some resemblance, but it won't be exactly the same. So I would sort of treat with, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say don't believe it, but I would take it with a pinch of salt. And if it's something that resonates with you, stick with it, but don't take it as gospel. Look into it a bit further, you know, do some digging around, speak to a professional, um, you know, locally um, that you can have a conversation with and to explore that. I'm not saying you necessarily need therapy per se, but, you know, if there's somebody that you can have a discussion with about these things or read up about it, then, you know, do that. I just wouldn't take everything that's said on social media as gospel, just firstly, first and foremost. Um, the second thing that I would look out for, and again, I say this with caution because I don't think that this is what everyone does, but I think if somebody if somebody presents you with a problem or somebody shares information with you that highlights that there is a difficulty or some kind of flaw in your human psyche or the way in which you understand the world or your mental mental health and then wants to sell you their services mm, i just i mm. uh, just it makes me it just it just makes me a little bit <laughs> It just I feel like there's a, there's a hard me. relate, um, especially with what I do, is there's this this premise around pain points and leveraging pain, but here's the solution. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think and I think this is the thing that I, I didn't know about social media because uh, for, for two years ago, because I use social media to take pictures of my food and my dog and my kids and all that kind of stuff. And I used fancy filters and that was pretty much the extent of social media. However, since sort of starting my account, it's I've just been exposed to um, a lot more um, use of social media and actually social media is a very, very powerful marketing tool. And I think people use social media for marketing purposes, um, not necessarily always with malicious intent, but I just feel that sometimes there people will, yeah, use your pain, leverage your pain, create situations or mental health or, or pathologize fairly normal behavior, I suppose, and then want to sell you the solution, whether mm -hmm. it be through a book, whether it be through a workshop, whether it be through an eight week program, whether it be through all this kind of stuff. And I just, and at the same time, I also hold the fact that mental health access to mental health support is not the best. So I can understand why there is a market. I can understand why there is a gap. I can understand why there is a need. So I don't want to say that people shouldn't be able to access mental health support if they need it. I think there is just something slightly off about people saying there's something wrong with you and I can fix it mm. for this amount of money. And it just, I guess just ethically, it doesn't necessarily sit that well with me. I think if you wanted a therapist, there are there are loads of private therapists that you could probably find on Google, um, but then again, so you know, social media is marketing, so it's it's kind of a it's kind of a bit of a double edged sword, really. Yeah, um, there's access to it, but at the same time, I guess the promise of fixing anything yeah. is something I, I can certainly yeah. think about that from a coaching perspective. Is you know, I can I can promise all the most educated and well-versed things based on my experience and that individual mm -hmm. but i don't think you can make promises to anyone no so i'm always cautious of those things dan mm -hmm. thank you so much for your valuable time there's so much of use there i think that people get, get from that i think it goes without saying if you've loved this as much as i have please do subscribe share with some friends dan for the sake of the listener and where they could possibly go to find out a bit more about you be exposed to your wonderful content where do they go <laughs> Oh, thank you very much. I'm humbled by that. Um, but yeah, if you if you want, if you like the if you like me, I suppose uh, you can come find me on Instagram um, at the nicest dot psychologist, the dot nicest psychologist. Oh, I don't really know what it is, but it's the nicest psychologist on Instagram. I also have a, I also have a um, I also have a, a blog, a Substack page where I pretty much um, 
write some blogs. I, my podcast is on there. I've got a my own podcast, obviously, because that's what everyone does these days. Um, but it's called the Narcissist Ramblings Podcast. Um, so yeah, if you want to come listen to some of my stuff, uh, yeah, that'd be much appreciated. I just wanted to say thanks, Dan. Thanks for the opportunity to have this conversation. Oh, my pleasure. Um, yeah, it's really enjoyable. Thanks so much, mate. I, I think this is part one of many, whether I'm, I'm putting you in a position now where you can't say no, I don't know. <gasps> Absolutely. No, I think, <laughs> do you know what, the, you know, I, I just think the more it's, so I, I'm all about nuance. I'm all about having conversations that are nuanced, that are um, expansive, that don't fit neatly into a pastel um, Instagram uh, carousel. Um which is not to say that those don't have benefit as well. Like, again, I'm not trying to bash people who do that. It's just, you know, I think it's great that these conversations are happening online, but I also think they, they need expanding on. And I think, you know, I think, I think podcasts like this and, you know, conversations that we've had, I think they are, I think they're helpful. I think they fill in the gray or expand the gray a little bit more and, and highlight Absolutely. that things aren't, that things aren't necessarily just linear or black and white. So, yeah. So if you want to have another chat about things, I will gladly, come back absolutely i'll hold you to that thanks so much for listening everyone